Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, Tyler, you know we get to take a lot of trips around the American Shoreline on Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast. But today we're going to get to do a little time traveling. We have an incredible guest joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast today, Dr. Joel Pattison, who is a medieval fellow at the American Academy in Rome as a postdoc fellow there. He hails from Yale University as an undergrad. His master's in philosophy is from Cambridge University and his PhD in medieval studies with a focus on maritime trade from Cal Berkeley. And so we're going to get a chance to go back in time and learn about the, the uh, about this incredible subject. It's not our first history show. We have gone back in the Wayback Machine a a few times. We've been spending quite a bit of time in the 1990s recently, (laughs) believe it or not, talking about the National Basketball Association uh, and this MJ documentary that's out. But uh, we've also done a show on uh, the maritime importance of colonial era yeah. Uh, New England, which yeah. was a fascinating show. I'm blanking on the Fourth name. Fourth of July. Fourth of July last year. Blanking on the name of the uh, esteemed I'll get historian that uh, was on that show. We'll follow up with that. Um, but really looking forward to this show today, Peter. We're going to get to go across the pond, over to the Mediterranean, the center of the Western world for a very long time. And we're going to learn all about what was happening during the medieval period. But before we get into this fascinating discussion, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new Coastal Resiliency Department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Well, Joel, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, for our audience's uh, reference, Joel and I met each other way back in the day when he was singing with the spigs the spizzwinks is that right joel <laughs> that's right and you were in ojai where i'm from you were with drew who's uh, uh does the joko cruise by now our audience is kind of meeting all of these these people yeah all of tyler all your incredible friends who do amazing <laughs> things it's pretty good well joel uh it was i remember taking a really great long hike up to the punch bowls uh with you uh, yes i remember that too 
Yeah, and uh, I remember the entire way you were talking. We we talked about history of one sort or the other, and uh, mm. and anyway, just Drew was telling me what you were up to, and he described your study over there in Genoa, and I was like, this sounds like something very interesting. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background to get started. Let's learn a little bit more about Joel Patterson. Where are you from, and, and how did you come to dedicate your your academic life to studying history uh well certainly uh, first of all thanks for having me it's uh, uh it's great to get to to talk to you all about my research um but to answer your question so um i actually grew up mostly overseas uh, originally from washington dc but um uh because of my parents careers um uh, we uh, my family moved a lot uh including uh, spending about 13 years in europe so um, I grew up surrounded by European history and have always been interested in it uh, since that period. Um, and then sort of uh, specialized fairly early on in my academic career in medieval history in particular. Uh, but I've always been interested in connections and mobility and exchange in, in any era, not just uh, the Middle Ages. And so um, after I began grad school, I was naturally drawn to a subject like Mediterranean trade um, and found myself particularly compelled by the history um, of the city of Genoa in uh, northwestern Italy, um, and also of um, the Maghreb or North Africa. So that was a sort of natural fit for a dissertation topic. Joel, in in selecting a career and as academic area of study, uh, I really am curious because I I think tell us about what the attraction was because you selected a subject about the Mediterranean and about the maritime trades in that region in the medieval period. Um, you're going through the, the, you know, the course catalog, you're sitting around Flipping thinking- Flipping through the pages. Yeah, what am I gonna study <laughs> when I get my PhD? Uh, tell us about the spark. What, how did you come to, it's such a fascinating and interesting subject. Uh, tell us a little bit about the process you went through to find it. Of course. Well, I mean, you know, the wonderful thing about history, I think, as a discipline um, is its vagueness. <laughs> you know, if we think of history as, as the study of the past in its totality, that means that as historians, um, we get to use a huge range of sources and um, engage with other disciplines, you know, like anthropology, archaeology, linguistics, comparative literature, etc. Um, so for me, in, Mediterranean, in the Mediterranean history, um, I was drawn to this particularly wonderful set of sources um, from uh, medieval Genoa. Um, and, you know, without going too much into the weeds, they're basically a, a, a series of uh, hundreds and hundreds of what are called cartularies. These are collections of documents uh, produced by a notary, um, touching on really every aspect of um, medieval life. So you can see wills and testaments and marriage agreements and lawsuits and... Um, they give you, as a whole, they give you a really fascinating glimpse into the daily life, the nitty gritty of a port city um, uh, and a very important port city. Uh, and it's a wonderful source to work with. And I was I was drawn to this source and wanted to to make something of it. Um, and as I mentioned before, of course, I've always been drawn to narratives or stories of exchange and trade. And so the city of Genoa, one of the most important port cities of, of uh, medieval Europe, was a natural choice. So when I found this source and um, the city itself, uh, which I visited for the first time only about five years ago, actually, 
um, I was I sort of decided that this was going to be my uh, dissertation topic. Interesting, Joel. And I want to uh, I want to kind of take a quick moment and talk about why we want to do this show here. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of this goes into, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why history is important and why we can, uh, the perspectives and um, the, the exercise of understanding history can be useful for us in understanding the American shoreline today. I mean, we're looking back at a med- medieval shoreline in a different part of the world. We understand that. We're very deliberately taking this trip back <laughs> in time to give perspective on how people of the past use the shoreline. But Joel, I would love for you to talk about in your own words, you know, the, the utility of, of your, your, of history and why, uh, why you, why we should give a as I like to say. Certainly. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of potential answers to that question. Um, one of them is just that it's inherently a good use of time, uh, an intellectual effort to think about how human societies have solved problems um, or confronted conflict or, or challenges um, in the very immediate past. So, you know, your 1990s or the 1190s. I mean, to the extent that we can know about how past societies operated, and that's, of course, a whole huge can of worms. Um, it, it tells us about how human beings interact with their environment. Um, and granted, you know, we're operating under greatly different uh, technological possibilities than um, the peoples of the medieval Mediterranean, but we still deal with issues of maritime trade and land use and uh, the culture of port cities and decision-making tied to markets and trade. Um, and the Mediterranean as a sort of site where we have an extremely well-documented area um, where written records go back in some areas for you know 4,000 years, um, it, it's a really wonderful laboratory to ask these sort of long-term questions about how do peoples adapt to changing circumstances and how trade works or doesn't work across a huge area. Uh, Joel, let me let me ask you if you wouldn't mind to talk to us a little bit more about the notary documents. I I didn't catch the name. If you could tell us that again and then place this archive into a a frame of reference between what period and what period were you investigating it and i gotta tell you tyler this is like somebody coming back today and going into the bureaucracy we talk bad about the bureaucracy (laughs) these days but these people back in the day kept track of all of this stuff and kept these things and you get to go back and get into the day-to-day transactional history of this community, this port town of Genoa. So tell us about the notary documents a little bit more and about the time frame and, and, and just elaborate if you wouldn't mind. Of course. Yeah. Um, so um, if you put it exactly right, you know, it's the bureaucracy, right? So um, the notarial documents, they're um, called that because they're produced um, by a notary. Um, so, you know, we have notaries today in the United States, but they don't fill quite the same role. So um, a notary is a critically important person in you know, not just Genoa, but all over sort of Western Europe from the uh, Western Mediterranean Europe from the 12th century. Um, and of course, also in the Islamic world and in the Byzantine, um, the Greek speaking world. Um, and basically, these are societies where perhaps a majority of people sense 
but where literacy is important. So anytime you are making a transaction or, or taking an important step in your life that requires a record, you go to a notary. So when you get married, when you sell land, when you have a dispute uh, with a neighbor or with a fellow citizen. Um, and so the notaries would write down these documents. They would write down the, these documents on behalf of their clients. And so they would start um, with something like, uh, with usually with a religious invocation, and then they would continue, I name, uh, confess to you, other name that I have received from you, the sum of whatever in exchange for these commodities. And then you have witnesses and you have a date and you have a location. Um, and these documents exist in Genoa from the 1150s onwards. So, you know, uh, 850 years ago, and they go in a more or less unbroken chain to the present day. Um, and what makes Genoa so special is that this is really very early in medieval uh, history for this type of document to have survived. We know that they were used elsewhere. They were used all over the Mediterranean, but for some reason in Genoa, they survived. Um, and so we can, we can really get a look at how this port city uh, operated from an earlier period than we can for say Venice or Naples. Um, so that's part okay. of my explanation. Let me, let me ask one more uh, quick question on the documents, because I know we want to talk about what's in them as opposed to the documents, but tell us about how they're archived. What kind of a place do you go to access it? Is it microfilm or, you know, PDFs, or are you looking at the actual uh, original documents? And I assume, of course, they're in Italian, I would assume, but tell us about the translation. I guess, do you, do you speak Italian? Um, I, I do speak Italian. The, the documents are actually in Latin, um, at least for the early stages, ah. um, for the first sort of 500 years or 400 years or so of their existence. Um, and uh, they're preserved in the Archivio di Stato, the, the State Archive of Genoa. Um, and um, they're in, they're mostly they're still in their manuscript forms. So you'll go in, you'll ask to see a particular cartulary, and each cartulary contains between 200 and 300 pages or folios of these documents. Um, and every page might have as many as five different documents on them because they're written in a kind of shorthand. Um, so they, they took quite a while to, to decipher at first, uh, but once you get the hang of it, um, they're formulaic, you know, so they repeat themselves. There's only about, well, only, I say only, there, there are a few dozen forms of documents, you know, so every will looks the same to start, you know, and every land sale looks the same to start. Mm. And so you can sort of over right. time recognize them. So are you, um, and you're searching for it. You, you, in other words, there's no Google search feature. You can't just go not. maritime trade documents and it blows through the blizzard thing and pulls out the 20 that you need. You're going through page by page. Um, and what kind of documents were you specifically hoping to explore? dissertation was actually on Genoa's relationship with North Africa um, or the Maghreb, um, which is to say the, the countries between Libya and Morocco. So Libya, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. Um, and what I was interested in was the evidence of Genoese and other Italians who were settling in and trading in the North African port cities, uh, places like Tunis, Algiers, uh, Ceuta, um, uh, Bijaya, etc. 
Um, and I forgot to mention the other aspect of my dissertation, which uh, was quite important, is the reaction of local um, Maghrebi uh, uh, Arab-speaking uh, communities, Arab-speaking Muslim and Jewish communities, to the presence of these Italian merchants. Um, now, those were not found mostly in the uh, notarial cartularies. To, to reconstruct those attitudes, I had to rely on another set of sources, um, legal documents written in Arabic uh, and compiled in the late Middle Ages. So what's clear here is that we are dealing with a period of time where there is a ton of exchange occurring between uh, the various port cities around the Mediterranean. And I think yes. it would be actually be really helpful for uh, for me particularly if you could kind of, I, and I know like as if we were in eighth grade, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> the map on the wall, right? Yeah, there, no, I mean, the, like, you know, yeah. No, like, so, so like, there's, there's two things I want to hit here. Uh, the first is I know that you have some information on uh, the actual geography of the region that I think is really interesting and, and the hydrology and the, the way the, the way it works. And maybe what we can do is talk about the, the geology and kind of this part of the world and what makes it unique. And then overlay that with a quick fast forward, like let's go back to the dawn of time, if you will, <laughs> and take me through the, you know, what the Mediterranean has, the transformation that the Mediterranean has gone through by the time we reach the 1150s and we're looking at these documents. So, I mean, to think, you know, thinking about the Mediterranean as a whole, I mean, a couple of very obvious points stand out, right? You know, it's, it is a huge inland sea um, by, you know, by some measures, it's the largest enclosed sea um, on, on Earth. Um, uh, but what it's also important to note, note about the Mediterranean is, you know, its, its rate of evaporation is significantly higher than its inflow from rivers like the Nile or the Po or, or whatever. So it actually depends a huge amount on the inflow from the Atlantic at the Straits of Gibraltar. And what that means is you have an extremely powerful current that comes in from the Atlantic um, and circulates around the Mediterranean. It's also, it's quite nutrient poor, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean, and it's highly saline, again, because of the inflow from the ocean and the high level of evaporation. It's dominated by hot, dry summers and cool, wet winters. And, and those are patterns uh, of um, currents and, and uh, seasonal temperatures that as far as we can tell, have held true with some variation, of course, um, for most of recorded history. Um, obviously, the Mediterranean, like the rest of the planet, is is now dealing with climate change, and so summers are getting hotter, um, and that will undoubtedly have an effect on, on on the weather in a sort of seasonal sense, and also perhaps on currents and winds. Um, but the other thing to note is that um, the winds in the Mediterranean are quite seasonally, or have been quite seasonally stable. They tend to be north to south, and they tend to be west to east, although with, again, seasonal variations. Um, it also has a highly indented coast, you know, all these peninsulas, all these islands, uh, and high mountains, especially in the north, uh, which have important knock-on effects on land use um, and on navigational possibilities um, for the human societies who've lived around the Mediterranean um, since antiquity. Uh, so those are important geographical and uh, hydrological um, constraints to bear in mind when thinking about the possibilities for human uh, uh, behavior and land use around let me, the Mediterranean. Let me, let me explore a couple of those. That is such a fascinating connection to make. I would never think about 
the mountain ranges next to the Mediterranean, how that would affect nearshore land development and that kind of stuff. The trade winds and the consistency of the trade winds means that there's energy and power to travel in certain directions at certain times of the year. I assume that that is the implication of that, which means that patterns of movement and trade are influenced by these physical features. And you also use the word enclosed, which obviously the Strait of Gibraltar, which you refer to, opens to the Atlantic. But the was it possible, you know, in early maritime history in the Mediterranean to transit in and out of the Strait of Gibraltar when you say enclosed? I mean, explain that more. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question, right? I mean, obviously, it's not entirely enclosed because it does have the Atlantic. um, And that's a critical, critically important connection. Um, But, you know, as I mentioned, it has this incredibly powerful current flowing in through the Straits of Gibraltar and into the, the, the Sea of Albaran on the other side, on the Mediterranean side. And that made it very difficult to actually exit the Mediterranean in a lot of ancient and medieval craft. It was possible and it did happen. But it was not a simple measure of of just navigating along the coast. I mean, that current is very strong, and we know of only a few examples of um, uh, long distance voyages that started in the Mediterranean and went out through the the Straits of Gibraltar in antiquity and the early Middle Ages. It did happen; certainly did happen. Um, but it was it was it was challenging. All right. So back to uh, back to the what happens in order to get us we're going to do a quick it's like if you were watching a youtube video and you can just like speed that little cursor along the bottom (laughs) kind of look at some freeze frames here kind of triangulate where we're at but we know let's just start with with the beginning and i'm I'm gonna let you decide where that is is it the egyptian is the egyptians where we should begin to kind of understand this space well, I mean, so I should first of all stress that I am not an ancient historian uh, or an archaeologist by training. I'm a medievalist. Um, but you're absolutely right that we do need to see the period that I study in the long, in the sort of long frame, what, you know, uh, in French is called the long durée view of history, the long, long duration. Um, and what's clear is that, you know, I said earlier, our earliest written records um, in the Mediterranean go back 4,000 years in the Eastern Mediterranean, actually a little bit further. Um, but even before written records, it's clear that people are moving around the Mediterranean. Um, they are engaging in coastwise navigation. Um, islands are being settled. Uh, Crete, Cyprus, Malta. Um, the island of Malta has some of the most impressive megalithic uh, ruins or, or monuments in all of uh, the Mediterranean. These uh, huge stone temples, or, or uh, it's actually not clear what they are. So people are clearly moving around. Um, when we talk about exchange, you know, exchange is sort of a a catch-all term that can uh, refer to a lot of different human activities, right? It can be literal trade. I show up in a ship at your city and we trade commodities. It can mean tribute. It can mean raiding or, or slavery, which is a, a critical part of Mediterranean uh, economies and, and societies for, uh, for most of its history. Um, but written documents allow us to sort of see, to get, gain a different perspective on why people are moving and what they're trading. Um, you know, archaeology can tell us a huge amount about, you know, shipwrecks, et cetera. Um, 
but when, when we get written records and we start to be able to talk about sort of prices and commodities um, in, in, a, in a more detailed way, and yes, in Egypt and uh, the ancient Near East are the sort of earliest sources of those records. And, you know, we know both the Egyptians and the Syrian, Syro-Phoenicians were active in the Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, we can trace a more or less continuous history of um, exchange in the Mediterranean through written records from the early first millennium uh, BC, or later, or earlier, in fact, rather, from the second uh, second half of the um, second millennium BCE, so 1500 BCE, let's say, uh, onward. Uh, again, with some uh, with some sort of ebbs and flows, uh, but you know, we can we can look at at, at that trade um, continuously throughout. Um, so you're picking up around 1150, you said, looking at Genoa's records and the archive uh, and, and, and the trade practices go back to 1500, something 2600 years. We're talking about a hero- exactly. history of maritime trading in the Mediterranean for 2600 years before before you, before you show up, before we your, show up with in, your research in 1150. Right. And that that would be obviously that's a long time, Joel. That is a long time. <laughs> It's hard to size that up as like yes. a, as someone who's not accustomed to a bite that big of history. That's a lot of time. Let's talk a bit about the the mar- the equipment that these maritime people would be on. Obviously, they're in this kind of bath type of system. You know, uh, it's kind of swirling around, um, and we know. Uh, Peter, we did our show on ships, rats, or ships, ships, cats, rather. Right. And uh, one of the things I was really interested to learn in doing my half-assed internet research for that program was that uh, the tradition of the ship's cat goes back to the ancient Egyptians, right. who were sailing on basically like, like tied together reeds. Yeah. I mean, like their their vessels were not mouse food. Yeah, they were basically. <laughs> mouse food i mean even even through to a wooden yeah but <clears throat> i found that to be very interesting but talk a little bit about uh the the type of equipment and just you know brought briefly kind of the evolution in uh technology in the coastal trade that was happening around the mediterranean of course yeah so um you know painting with a very broad brush of course you know you have human-powered craft in oars uh, or pulling in sort of shallow areas, uh, very shallow areas, uh, or, um, or wind propulsion. Um, and for the entirety of the period that I just described, beginning in you know, 1500 BCE or, or earlier, and, and through, through the period that I study and later, um, you're really talking you know, about wind and, and oars. Um, and so now technology does change in that period. I mean, ships get bigger, particularly in the Roman period. You have these absolutely enormous sailing vessels um, that uh, would take grain from Egypt and uh, ferry it to Ostia and then um, be uploaded. Lo- these ships were so big, they couldn't go up the Tiber. But and they'd be loaded on carriers, a smaller but, ship. But Joel, give us, some, give us some lengths. I mean, we're talking about like how long of a ship and can you... It, is it known what the capacity of the ship was in terms of tonnage or whatever the measuring stick was for those guys? 
It probably was um, a stick. I guess it was a stick. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, grain ships uh, from from Rome, um, these the sort of you know massive ships could uh, you know could hold up to could hold many many tons of grain. Um, they could be a hundred feet long. Okay. Um, they uh, yeah. I, I I don't I don't want to sort of. Go yeah. out too far on a limb. You don't need here. to ballpark um, it, <laughs> but they were they were large enough that they couldn't fit up the Tiber. Um, they were they were they were too large for net for river navigation. Where's the um, Tiber? It's Rome. It was the, the, the the river that goes through Rome. Ah, <laughs> and the Tiber. Um, the Tiber. So they actually had to be transshipped, sort of loaded onto smaller ships to go up the river. That's how. And big is that were. is that obviously you know it sounds so stupid me asking this question because I think there's like an expression about Rome being the center. Yeah. of the world but were all these vessels heading to rome was that was that the notion that you're going you're bringing like was there a, a hub of commerce i mean i'm thinking pr- principally during the roman empire period pre pre your period of study but i'm just wondering the extent to which um you know rome was kind of the magnet drawing in all the all the traffic well, that's certainly true in in the in the high in the period of the high empire. Um, so, I mean, one important thing to, to understand, of course, is that um, you know the last time the Mediterranean has ever been politically unified was under the Roman Empire, um, and so the political realities uh, had a huge impact, of course, on Mediterranean trade on and on w- what went where. So the fact is that these grain ships were subsidized heavily by the Roman state and you know, the, Roman, the Roman Republic and then later the emperors had a, a vested interest in providing grain, cheap grain, um, free grain, in fact, after yeah. a certain point part to of the, political, the people of Rome. Part of the political currency that maintained the peace was to provide – because people would starve if the exactly. Roman crops failed. They would need to bring grain from Egypt and – keep people fed exactly um and you know by the time by these of course the, the population of the city of rome may have been as high as a million people so you know for that level of population in a pre-modern society um you know it's really incredible and so you need to have a well-oiled um distribution network for resources um of course the the upshot of that is that once rome once in in the later empire, once they began to lose control of the grain producing areas of the empire, the city of Rome contracted enormously because there, it just could not support itself okay. with the resources that were available closer to, to, to home. So, you know, these, this incredible age of Roman maritime trade really was a, a reflection of the success of the Roman state. And um, after the Roman state collapsed in the West, trade looked different. Hmm. Let's let's jump. Let's move forward in time to 1150, where your investigation and research focuses on what is called the medieval period. Um, I'm interested about. Could you give us a sense of the scale of how robust was Mediterranean trade in the period that you were investigating? We know there's a track record here. There's technological. There's port established. There's you know, there's history, but how big? And how important was it in the communities and the empires or the power centers? How central was maritime trade? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, 
as great as the uh, Genoese notarial records are, any kind of hard and fast quantitative estimate is going to be extremely dodgy. Uh, but I can certainly say that by the 12th century, um, uh, trade had trade and the volume of long distance exchange had recovered significantly from the post-Roman era when it really seems to have uh, dwindled quite significantly. Um, and one thing that's important to note as well is that you know in every era um, that we study, as far as we can tell, elite sort of high high level luxury trade continues. So even during the centuries after the collapse of the Roman Empire, you still get things like wine and papyrus and high uh, spices making their way across the Mediterranean. But what really distinguishes the medieval period from that is that you have a, a return of um, bulk commodities, uh, things like grain and textiles and other sort of relatively humbler, uh, less less pricey day-to-day um, -day items. Exactly, exactly. You know, obviously we're not talking about, we're not on the level of, you know, the modern world where it's cheaper to make a pair of sandals and, you know, some other country than it is at home, but we are talking about widely accessible um, uh, bulk commodities across the Mediterranean. Um, it's no longer centered on Rome, of course. It has it is a polycentric world, um, but there are still what we would could refer to as sort of trunk roots or um, particularly important connections between the various cities around the Mediterranean. Some of which existed in the Roman period, and some of which were more or less completely new. Hmm. Can you sketch that a little bit, what those trade routes were, what the principal um, port cities or trading centers were in this poly, I'm not sure what poly, what was it? Polycentric. Polycentric, yeah, period. Certainly, so, um, you know, some tr trade patterns are, are very old. So one thing to note about the Mediterranean, of course, is it's not just a closed system, it connects with other systems. Um, this was a sort of, you know, this sort of series of interlocking systems uh, was sort of really well described by uh, Janet Abulugod in the 19, uh, late 1980s. So the Mediterranean connects, for instance, to the Indian Ocean system, right? So Egypt is a major uh, trading partner for India uh, uh, in the Roman period, but especially um, in the early Islamic period. So you have a very a thriving Indian Ocean trade, uh, which means that if you want to buy Indian goods, going to Egypt is the easiest way to do that if you are, let's say, a Venetian or Genoese merchant. Um, and so Alexandria, the city of Alexandria, which was of course also important in antiquity, remains important as a, um, an entrepot for Indian Ocean goods. Um, but you also have places like Constantinople, um, modern day Istanbul, um, which is a major port um, connecting the Black Sea with its abundant reserves of grain hmm. um, and other, uh, sort of bulk commodities with the uh, Mediterranean world. Um, and of course, you also get the uh, uh, crucially important, especially for my dissertation, act of uh, West African gold um, arriving in Europe exclusively through Mediterranean ports of North Africa, hmm. uh, which connect it to trans-Saharan trade. So, you know, uh, most European gold in the Middle Ages until really the 14th century came from West Africa and it came across the Sahara and then it was loaded onto ships and, and taken to um, to Western Europe. So hmm. you have these wow. systems that converge in the Mediterranean. Um, 
Let me let me ask you. I'm curious about that because this this notion of trade into the Mediterranean and then into the European well, we can't call it Europe then, but across the Mediterranean being tied to these these important land routes and mm-hmm. um, you know as you said the ship technology wasn't sufficient to sail out of the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar and down the African coast and pick up the gold and bring it back. It was carried by caravans and camels up to I guess. And on the Egyptian coast, and then brought over to the European side. And I guess it would be the same thing on the Indian route, that the Suez Canal didn't exist at that time. Uh, there's got to be some land connection. Nobody's sailing around the Cape of Good Hope that was what, I at the bottom of Africa. This is no, they're not doing that. That sounds crazy. That would they it'd be nuts. That's Jason and the Argonauts <laughs> stuff. You know, that's not happening. Silly, <laughs> really silly. Well, but, but, of, but they are sailing across the Indian Ocean, um, and you know the uh, there's you know very impressive feats of navigation um, going on in the Red Sea, and so you know you would. Um, uh, there are, are wonderful written records from uh, Arab-speaking merchants and and travelers who made this trip. And you could go down the Nile, you could take a camel across the desert to um, a, a Red Sea port, and then hmm. get on a ship, and it would take you to India. Wow! Um, so it's a combination. You know, it's it's land routes that connect to sea routes, um, and different groups of of middlemen who control different sort of links in that chain. Okay, so let's, I, I want to go to this subject, Tyler, and, 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 and please jump in here, but it's really, I would like to explore, let's, let's start talking about the connection between these trading relationships in the Mediterranean and the cultural implications of those relationships in, in, in the broader sort of social context. Absolutely. So, you know, by the time that I study, of course, you know, the Mediterranean is has not been politically unified for 600 700 years um in addition to that you have these uh very distinct religious traditions you have christianity western christianity latin-speaking christianity greek christianity um islam in its various um uh divisions and uh in in all around the mediterranean uh, uh jews who speak the language who speak Arabic or or Italian or or Spanish or or Greek, and who uh, fit into this system. So you have tremendous uh, religious, linguistic, um, and uh, political diversity. Um, and so this means, because of the the limitations of uh, of sailing technology um, and 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 oared oared, oared uh, vessels, um, sailors going from A to B could almost never just go from A to B. You had to go A to B to C to D to, to E to F to G to H. And that meant you had to negotiate rights and privileges in all of these port cities. You, know, you, you, you traveled along the coast. So um, you had to be able to negotiate with people who might, be a diff- who might speak a different language or have a different religion um, or who might be at war uh, with their neighbors. And so... It was a, a constant challenge, and part of why this period, I think, is so fascinating is that you have uh, longstanding uh, re- uh, normative and, uh, and real religious tensions. I mean, this is the era of the Crusades and um, of uh, what are viewed at the time as holy wars in uh, not just in the Holy Land, but also in, in Spain, in, in Al-Andalus, and in North Africa. Um, and yet, trade is burgeoning during this period between the 
um, between Christians and Muslims and and Jews. And so it's a real it's a real sort of balancing act between this you know persistent violence in the Mediterranean basin, um, which often has religious overtones, and yet the constant trade that's in the background all the time. And how was this impacting like the daily life of, say, people who lived in Genoa? Like, what what's the city looking like as trade? You know, you're you kind of set this context that after the fall of the Roman Empire, trade kind of evaporates, and over a period of time afterwards, uh, there is a a growth. And I'm just curious to know as as trade particularly trade coming in on ships around the Mediterranean, what what do these cities look like? Are they growing? Are the waterfronts becoming more industrial? Like, would it be possible for you to kind of take us on a little uh, oral tour, if you will, of, of a waterfront in Genoa during this period of time? Certainly, or at least to some, some extent. Um, so one thing, of course, to note is that, you know, trade never disappears, even during, you know, what what are stereotypically referred to as the dark ages. Um, what, what disappear, what, what, what's striking is the reduction in the volume of trade, but you always have elite long distance movement um, in the Mediterranean in every period of written history that we, that we can know about. Um, but it, in, in the period that I study, um, these cities are definitely growing um, and they're growing in some cases quite substantially, even within the lifetime of the people who uh, are involved. So, you know, contemporaries noticed how they were growing. Um, one very obvious way that they were growing is that they kept out, they, they kept needing to build new walls. So for instance, in Genoa, um, if you go there today, you can still see the remains of a series of walls that were built around, the, around actually around 1150. Um, huh. And they were built partly because the city was a little nervous about its relationship with the German emperor, um, who was nominally king of Italy, and who was always on sort of not so great terms with the northern Italian city-states, of which Genoa was one. So the, the sort of the town fathers decided that they were going to build a massive set of walls to protect the city because the older walls from the ninth century were no longer big enough. The, there were too many suburbs outside of them. So they, they built this series of walls. And then again, 200 years later, they had to expand again because the city had grown. Um, kind of like and, freeways today, really. Yeah, like the exactly. Loops, you know, <laughs> yeah, it gets bigger. Yeah, you just yeah, you build it, a loop gets, and then you encourage people to to settle on the other side of the loop. <laughs> well, right. Wall Street, of course, referred to an early wall on the on Manhattan Island that divided the Dutch settlement from oh. the indigenous culture. That was the location mm -hmm. of the initial wall. How anyway, about that? sorry, we're descending. Yeah, and the other interesting thing, I think, from the perspective of coastal management um, as well, is that, you know, a lot of these cities, um, you know, they, they knew, especially, you know, these trading cities like Genoa, they knew how reliant they were on um, the ability of ships to harbor there safely. So one of the earliest sort of um, communal projects that's traceable in the written records in Genoa is the expansion of their harbor. They built a, a giant sort of... Um, artificial peninsula, a mole, out to create more of an anchorage. Uh, and that uh, dated, dates to the 12th century. Um, they also built lighthouses. Um, and, and then later, uh, five, 400 years later, um, when the Mediterranean in the 16th century was transitioning to a different style of long distance trade where you had these um, large sailing ships, that galleons that were 
uh, that drew a lot more water, they realized that their port was in danger of becoming too shallow to welcome these these huge ships. So they dredged the port, actually. Mm, wow. um, and this is a, a constant sort of challenge in the Mediterranean is that, you know, it's tempting to think of port cities as, you know, having this, you know, they have great locations and they're set and the, the trade will just always come there. But, you know, rivers silt up and, you know, river mouths change. And uh, there are, one can point to Mediterranean cities that used to be port cities and are no longer because of those natural phenomena. So hmm. Mediterranean peoples have always had to be very adaptive to the changing environment. And they have launched sometimes successful, sometimes not so successful campaigns to change their own environments to be more accommodating to long distance trade. So this is what I found just so amazing and fascinating is to is to look at these uh, maritime trading practices in the context of the social and cultural implications for uh, nearshore communities and what drove engineering practice, the ability to create coastal fortifications, the ability to dredge and to establish port infrastructure and transportation networks. I mean, Tyler and I have been talking a lot about what's happening in Houston and Corpus with the LNG facilities where they're taking mm. the port of Corpus to 84 feet because they've got very large crude carriers that are going to come in. They're a thousand feet long. They carry a million tons of oil and they need yeah. deep water and big infrastructure. And it's happening today. And I think people may not realize that in the 11th and 12th and 13th centuries, coastal communities were building port and trade infrastructure and modifying the environment at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were. And they were uh, uh, the sort of the, the dark side of that is they were destroying the infrastructure of their rivals. You know, so this is a period, again, of polycentrism and endemic warfare. Um, and in particular, the period that I study uh, Genoa had a, a, tr a tremendous rivalry with uh, another Italian city, well, several Italian cities, uh, Venice, but also Pisa. And, you know, if you don't think of Pisa as being a port city, it's, there's a good reason for that. And part of it is that the Genoese won a battle against them and deliberately destroyed as much of the port infrastructure as they could. Uh, and, you know, Pisa is on a river. And so they, they could make it very difficult for um, Pisan merchants to actually reach open water. So um, it sort of it cut both ways. Um, so uh, the second part of your dissertation that you spoke about was in addition to the trade practices and the documents. I, I just got to ask you this question before I move on here. But tell me what a manifest looks like in these documents and what's on the piece of paper and what can you learn from it? Is it like 10 amphors, you know, six chickens? <laughs> well, actually, I mean, what does um, it got those on Those types of documents do exist, um, particularly for the ancient world and for later in the Middle Ages. Um, they're comparatively actually rare in terms of a, a literal bill of lading. Um, oh. But what you do get are shipping contracts, um, and they'll tell you, um, that, first of all, they reveal a, a quite complex uh, social structure that makes long distance trade possible. So, you know, a single ship could have multiple owners. Um, the owners are probably not the actual captains. Um, and uh, then the merchants who put their goods on the ship might be entirely, an entirely different uh, right. individuals or groups of individuals. Um, and so what you have are agreements, basically, um, for, uh, for passage to various Mediterranean ports, and they'll list the types of cargo they expect to load, 
I but see. they don't but they don't always list the sort of down to the literal yeah you know, it's not the bill of lighting it's i'm i'm contracting with you ship owner group to carry my stuff from a to b exactly. and and this is what we're going to do and there's some sort of schedule was there can yeah. i just jump in on this yeah did did certain uh, uh owners specialize in certain type certain routing yeah and- and different types of ships yeah you know you know uh or was it more general were these vessels kind of all the same or were they specialty built great question um the the short answer is there were several types of vessels um so uh there was a lot of um travel that went on by a galley uh so you know a a galley is obviously you know basically a giant rowboat um you know they would have sails to spare the rowers but they were um, you know, designed to be propelled by ore, uh, and that type of ship had a, sign- had a serious sort of technology. There were serious trade-offs um, in in using a galley over a sailing ship. You know, a galley is much more maneuverable um, in uh, if there's no wind, uh, but it needs a large crew, uh, and a large crew means that you have relatively limited uh, room for the actual trade goods um, because you have to carry water and food to feed the crew. And you also have to stop every week or two weeks to take on more water, more food, which is why I was talking earlier. About Hold on how, a second. So know, they'd be yeah. a week. They'd be a week out it. at uh, uh, between <clears throat> between stops. Yeah. Like, for example, what what's going on at night? Are they yeah. rowing through the night? Is, are, it, is there, there a night watch? Do, they, do you there... drop anchor? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, as far as we can tell, I mean, there were a range of practices, but a lot of times, yes, they would drop anchor um, or yeah. they would sort of, you know, stop somewhere along the coast. Um, it would depend on what sort of time they were trying to make. Um, warships might be able to row through the night um, if they were on a campaign. Um, it, it, it would depend. But one thing that, w- that would be true is that you have a very limited amount of supplies. You can stay out at sea. Uh, with on a galley um, on a sailing ship you need a much smaller crew you don't have oars you can carry a lot more cargo so mm-hmm. these are the so-called round ships um, and so you know the advantage there is you can you can carry more cargo and with, a, with less of a crew and you can maybe you don't need to stop as often but what do you do when the wind dies right then you're sol as it were or you you know <laughs> um what do you do you, if you're... No, you're um, up shit's creek, man. You don't have a <laughs> right. paddle. The door. Exactly, <laughs> literally. Or, you know, what do you do if you round a, you know... A, That's where a, that comes a, from. A particular headland and you see a bunch of galleys showing up uh, who are going to attack you. You know, they're all packing a hundred... Crews of a hundred people with crossbows or whatever, and you have, you know, 20 sailors on a sailing ship. You know, you, you're vulnerable. So it's, it's always a trade-off. So the, the types of ships mattered a, a tremendous amount, um, and that's important to bear in mind when thinking about right. you know, Mediterranean trade. Can I ask a follow, any, any just a quick follow-up? Were these vessels manufactured in a – was there a particular region around the Mediterranean that kind of specialized in shipmaking? And uh, if so, where was it? And, you know, if, if, there, if not, were there um, design differences uh, – or construction differences yeah. in, you know, different regions' ships. Uh, absolutely, there are, there's uh, significant differences. Um, I mean, within the very broad uh, spectrum of sailing, you know, they're all sailing ships, or they're all oared ships, or there's some combination. Um, you still get a lot of regional variation. Um, you know, you get you know ships that are 
you know, built for local use only, uh, sailing ships um, or ships that are built to make the really long voyages. And eventually, you know, in the later 13th century, they do establish routes that take you out of the Mediterranean, you know, through the through the Straits of Gibraltar. And so you need to build a special type of ship hmm. to get you out of wow. the Mediterranean and that can survive the sort of rougher seas um, along the Atlantic coast of, of Iberia and, and, and France. Um, so not every part of the Mediterranean was equally well uh, endowed with the resources you need to build ships, uh, um, medieval ships. So, I mean, you need good timber, you need pitch, you need uh, hemp for cable. Um, and uh, in general, places like Egypt uh, are very poor in all of those. So they imported a lot of raw materials. And this was a huge bone of contention during the Crusades because the papacy uh, was, you know, as you might imagine, was death on trade with the, the infidels, so-called. And so they continuously were trying to limit the, the ability of Christians to sell strategic materials wow. to um, to non-Christians. They failed in most cases, but those laws remained on the books, uh, as it were, for hundreds of years. Um, and so there there absolutely were, uh, were differences in local shipbuilding capabilities and technologies. Um, but, you know, places like Genoa or Venice uh, had dedicated zones that were their um, naval shipyards, the, the arsenal. Um, I mean, the, the word arsenal actually comes from the Arabic uh, hmm. and, you know, refers to a place where uh, where ships were, are, are built, uh, warships are built. Interesting. So real curious about one thing. I keep wanting to get to the rest of this discussion, but they're so fascinating. Oh. Um, did the papacy have a navy? I knew they had, I know they had armies. They raised armies. The crusades were church-sponsored armies did the papacy have a navy that patrolled and tried to knock down trade um well during my period no um but eventually in the um in beyond the period that i work on they did maintain a small sort of squadron um uh because of course the, the papacy was a territorial power within italy i mean they ruled all of what's what today is lazio um and uh emilia romagna and and umbria so they did have access to resources they could build their own um but they in fact relied heavily on the cooperation of places like venice or genoa or pisa um so uh -huh. those those cities were when they felt like it the armed sort of the navies of right. uh, of christendom that's right um now they didn't always feel like it and they were constantly of course fighting each other and the papacy was trying to get them to make up so that they could focus right. their their wrath on the enemies um but the papacy really you know was limited to uh, persuasion, diplomacy, and threats. Uh, they didn't really. They weren't really an independent naval power in the period that I that I worked on. Okay, so let's let's start talking a little bit more in detail about the cultures of ex exchange. And I'm interested in this point you made about the other part of your dissertation, which was the reaction of the Arab speaking, the Muslim communities' uh, reaction to the presence of Italian traders who who set up shop within their communities can you can you talk about the necessity of of these traders to be located in other areas and what that meant culturally in terms of how the communities reacted oh yeah absolutely so um i mean one thing that's important to note is you know when you look at these mediterranean port cities it's tempting from a modern perspective 
um, from a modern sort of romanticization of, of, of the pre-modern world to, to talk about these, you know, melting pot cities or um, cosmopolitan cities. And they were to a limited extent, but they also relied very heavily on policing boundaries and having firm segregation really is, is the only real word for it uh, between these various communities. So um, the rulers of many of these North African cities and not just in North Africa, but just to take my dissertation as an example, they wanted to attract foreign merchants and they wanted those merchants to feel comfortable. But one of the ways that they felt comfortable was by having their own little zone of the city that was theirs with their own buildings, their own churches, uh, their own rights to use their own weights and currency and to drink wine, which was a potentially problematic uh, activity in a notionally Islamic community. Um, and so you're, you want to attract these foreign merchants, but you also want to uh, protect the sort of purity or integrity of your own people uh, as, as understood that way uh, from them. Yeah, it's the double-edged sword of of this exchange is that on the one hand, you get to benefit in the, the, the commerce that comes about. But on the other hand, you're diluting your your previous, perhaps your previous power structure if it's built on, you know, religious grounds or whatever it might be. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's, it's erosive is what it is. Yeah, or it could feel that way. Right. I would think. Was there, tell us about the tension within these communities. And you're talking about uh, the Muslim community, say, on the North African coast. Were there similar trading issues within Genoa, for example? Were there African traders who set up shop? And what was the, what's kind of the historical sense of the relationships between these embedded communities was it something generally peaceful was what happened well, that's a great question um i mean originally when i started my dissertation i wanted to find evidence of north african uh of Maghrebi merchants in genoa and they they were there but they are much less well attested that doesn't mean that they weren't equally present but um, the, the sort of amazing resource the, the notarial records that i mentioned for genoa we don't have them for Morocco, let's say, until a much later period. So it's harder, they're harder to trace. Um, but uh, what seems to be the case is that there, were, there was a, a substantial presence of uh, Italian and also Catalan and, and Provençal um, merchants in North Africa. I mean, in, we're talking, you know, in some places like Tunis in the thousands. Um, and so sometimes they brought their families with them. Um, sometimes they stayed for a few months. Sometimes they stayed for decades. Um, but they didn't largely, as far as we can tell, they didn't intermarry with the local communities um, and they maintained their, a, a strong sense of separation and of identity that, that connected back to the home country. Um, and this wasn't the case everywhere. Um, there were, there were uh, I mean, I focused on North Africa, but of course, uh, the coast of Italy and of Spain and of the Aegean also had these communities of Italian merchants and they, there where there weren't these linguistic um, or, or there weren't these religious uh, uh, backgrounds, uh, uh, boundaries rather, they could be more integrations. Um, there could be more sort of um, uh, integration into local society, intermarriages, um, uh, uh, families of, of mixed identities. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, oh, sorry, uh, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm curious about, so, you know, when you look at modern San Francisco, and 
the there are still remnants. This is true in New York City too. You can find you find Chinatown in San Francisco. You can go to Little Italy. These remnant immigration immigrant communities that came into these port cities. Um, if you went to Algiers, would you find what was it called? The Italian district did. Were they sort of consolidated in a physical space? Was the architecture different? And were they, you know, these, as Tyler was saying, this, this, these injections of new cultures, new religious beliefs into the trading cities uh, dilutes the purity. And, and, and I'm just wondering about the, were there riots? Were there, did they fight like we do? Did they try to kick everybody out? Like, you know, I mean, there's modern parallels to these kinds of experiences. And I just am curious about, did they get along better than we did? <laughs> um, I, I know you guys hate making comparisons when you're historians to the modern day, but I'm just wondering, like, you know, how did it go? I, I mean, it's it's a good question. It's an inevitable question. So you know, even though we should be cautious about, you know, making too forthright a comparison, there are certainly parallels. And it, it really ran the gamut. So, um you know, there were, there are certainly attested uh, instances of riots, anti-foreigner riots um, in, uh, well, all around the Mediterranean. Um, so, for example, uh, moving away from where I study uh, in, in Constantinople um, in, under the Byzantine Empire in the 12th century, the growing presence of Italians was extremely contentious. Um, and in 1182 or three, I forget exactly when, um, there was a general pogrom against the Italian merchants, um, where the, the sort of the uh, Greek-speaking Byzantines went from house to house and killed them. Um, and that something like that also happened in Egypt. Um, and, and this is, of course, on top of okay. you know, endemic violence against Jews in, um, in Western Mediterranean cities. But this was not, this didn't happen all the time. Otherwise, trade never could have taken place. And so we do get examples of, of quite peaceful relationships between the foreign merchant community and the, and the host communities. In, in many cases, actually, it was the merchants, the merchant on merchant rivalries that, that were really uh, had the potential for violence. Huh. Wow. Well, this has been a, an absolutely uh, amazing thing to ponder on. Peter. Yeah, it uh, is. Now, Joel, we've, we've, we've done about an hour, but I think before we wrap it up, we, I think it's, and we've already kind of started with that last question, but let's, let's think a little bit about the legacies that this period of time left on the modern world. And if you would just, just talk on that for a little bit for us and, and explain to us how we can still see the the residue, if you will, of, yeah. of this period of time. Certainly. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I should, I think I should sort of begin with a, a caveat that, you know, the Mediterranean is not the only, you know, fascinating and, and ancient laboratory of, of, you know, trade and exchange over human history. You know, there are many candidates you could, you, you could, uh, you could pick for, for, for that, but, what I'll say about the Mediterranean is that it's, it's very well documented, uh, which is what I began with. And so a lot of the institutions and practices that still shape modern day uh, trade, shipping, the market economy, uh, first become visible historically there, or they, if not first, then they become visible historically in a way that we can really see the details of. 
uh, during the ancient and medieval periods. Um, and you know, the peoples of the Mediterranean have been figuring out how to use the coastline and how to negotiate with other and trade with each other for as long as any other humans, um, but they have this amazing written record that we can really plunge into. So, you know, when we think about um, microecologies or adaptability of coastal communities to changing geographical and uh, political constraints, and also the paradox of constant trade and constant warfare, we have a, a laboratory uh, for investigation stretching back uh, hundreds of years, uh, thousands of years, sorry, in the Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, so many of the terms and, and uh, institutions that structure uh, modern capitalism uh, have their origins in this period, uh, in, in the medieval period in the Mediterranean. Um, you know, I could come up with a list of, of terms, uh, but I mean, just looking at things like you know, quarantine, a something we're all used to now, you know, that has its roots in the practice of port cities in the medieval Mediterranean dealing with contagion. Um, the reason the Black Death was so devastating and could spread so quickly was because of the network of exchange that had been established by medieval Mediterranean merchants. Um, and as was the, a strategy to, to cope with it. Um, but, you know, looking at just, you know, looking at the languages of the people around the Mediterranean, you can see in their vocabulary the importance of these uh, cross-cultural connections and exchanges. The fact that, you know, Italian and, and, and Spanish are stuffed full of Arabic terms for, for trade and, and traffic. Um, and, you know, even some of them have made it into English. So I hope that's a, a decent answer. Woo! I mean, talk about scratching the surface. I can, just, barely. I mean, I'm just dying to know. We, we we will not drag you through all of this, but you know, how did they handle contagion, and how did they respond, and what were the strategies maybe, utilized at that maybe, time? Can, can we just can, can we do at least that? Can one, we get Joel? Yeah, Joel, could you do just how? Yeah, I, how did we got, do? It's when in the midst of a global pandemic, yeah, it's well, only appropriate. <laughs> Why not? One last question, Joel. What tell us about that quarantine? Like, how did that go down uh, during this period of time? You mentioned the plague. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one uh, one sort of theory for the for the spread of the plague, which is sort of widely accepted and was identified even at the time, is that it was brought actually by Gen a Genoese ship. Um, the uh, so a classic example is it's a Genoese ship fleeing a siege in the Black Sea that eventually ends up in, I think, Sicily, um, and the crew are all sick, and that's where the plague enters Europe. Um, and the plague, it's you know important to denote, was not just a, a one-off phenomenon. It became endemic, and it came back every generation or so um, for the next three, four hundred years in European history. So um, the the port cities that relied on heavy traffic, on mobility, they had to come up with strategies to mitigate the danger of contagion. Mm. Um, and, and so the word quarantine comes from, you know, it's quarantena uh, in Italian, and it's thought to come from the practice of sequestering uh, arriving ships who were suspected of, of, of being exposure, exposure to plague for 40 days. Wow. Um, sometimes 40 in a, days. A stay at home order was 40 days. I wonder if they showed up at city hall with guns. I just wonder back in the day, or they said, <laughs> sit your ass down. You're sick. You're going to sit 40 days. 
Right. Um, now, I mean, it, it, it's not clear, again, how widespread this was. I mean, it, it, as far as we can tell, it began, I think, in the Adriatic um, in areas under Venetian control. Um, and uh, I, I don't certainly don't want to suggest that it was a an instantly adopted strategy that right. everyone embraced without question. Um, but it, at the same time, it's true that the the sort of the cities that relied for their livelihood on trade had to weigh it against the danger of of disease and that they found uh they found ways of of trying to control for it mm. to keep the trade flowing but keep the the rats out as it were that's what we're doing today we're trying to figure out that same balance uh joel i gotta tell you i really do feel like we just touched this topic i know you spent years doing it developed this incredible dissertation uh, is there a way that people who might be interested in learning more about this topic, is there a website, is there a way that they can, can learn more? Uh, what, where can they go? Well, certainly. Um, in terms of a website, I suppose that's something I should have looked up before I came on the show. Um, I can certainly recommend a couple of very accessible books um, that uh, people can dip in and out of uh, as, as they like um, if they're interested in in, in thinking about the Mediterranean and its history, um, I mean, uh, the Mediterranean, as I said, it's, it's, it's incredibly well studied and well covered ground. Um, but just in the last couple of years, uh, there have been some, some really influential treatments on it. So uh, David Abalafia has uh, a book called The Great Sea, a human history of the Mediterranean that begins in prehistory and takes you through the modern era, which we didn't even cover. You know, the fact that the Mediterranean is still a massive zone of, uh, of of trade, exchange, and movement of of human populations. You know, in terms of, of migration uh, and uh, refugee crisis, uh, and yeah. Abulafia takes you through that. Um, but uh, Peregrine Horden and Nicholas Purcell also wrote an extremely influential book called *The Corrupting Sea: Study of Mediterranean History*, which really delves into the the details um, and is great, especially for archaeology. Um, uh, books by Olivia Constable, uh, Jessica Goldberg, uh, John Pryor. Um, I'd be happy to yeah. send you a list. <laughs> yeah, we'll post that. We'll post it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Dr. Joel Patterson. He is the, a postdoc fellow in medieval studies at the American Academy in Rome. He's a specialist in the implications of maritime trade culturally, politically. I know we didn't even talk about the economic implications but such an incredible topic. And Tyler, I'm just really glad we did this show because this understanding, the connection between trade and maritime practices in, in the cities and, and communities around the American shoreline still goes on. And I just think it's so rich. It's, uh, it, to me, it kind of cuts both ways. I mean, first of all, I love it. I love going back in the history and uh, I, think I love our history shows. I think they're so interesting. Uh, they're so interesting. I think there's so much to be gained from the perspective that uh, people have been struggling to manage their relationship with the shoreline, all of the different industries, uh, how it interfaces with these economies of coastal communities. Right. So yep. massively. Forever. Forever. And the way that it draws people in and... and um, so, Joel, I think that this was just a really insightful uh, interview to do. And just thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much. I had, I, I had a great time. <laughs> and I'm going to close uh, this. Thank you. 
with uh, Tyler mentioned at the beginning of the show, our last historian was Dr. Bill Fla- uh, Fowler, who's a revolutionary <clears throat> naval historian from uh, Rhode Island, and I think one of the historians of record for Massachusetts. He's really was oh, an incredible, wow. incredible maritime historian. So we've got two superstar historians that we've had on the podcast, and and Dr. Patterson, thank you really so much. I. Man, I'd like to go into phase two on this. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. Mama, now.